Uh, good morning, everybody, and it's great that you can be with us today. And I want to say a particular welcome to those of you who've been joining us recently. Um, we're so pleased, and it's just a privilege for us to have you joining us online. And again, for those who are from overseas, I love knowing that we've got people from overseas and there's many countries that connect with us. It's great to have you here. Well, we're starting, we're continuing our series in Habakkuk chapter two today. You'll find that the words will come up on screen in just a moment. And, you know, when we started this series, um, somebody said to me, Neil, I didn't even know there was a Habakkuk in the Bible. And I did think, actually, you're probably not the only one. And if you want to find where Habakkuk is, go to the end of, of the Old Testament, go five books in, and you'll come to Habakkuk. Otherwise, why don't you just go to the index? Who's watching? So we're looking at Habakkuk, and we're doing that because we want to know how to face evil days or times of considerable catastrophe. And that's where we are at the moment, because the vast majority of us have never experienced anything like COVID uh, pandemic. None of us. So uh, we know it's global, uh, but let's not forget it's personal. And over the last couple of weeks, I can tell you that Des and I have had some conversations, both on text and on phone, um, which, to be honest, have been quite distressing. So some of you also will have experienced things like that, but also loss and, and grief. And for some, even your future and the, and the plans that you had for it, you find are just in shreds in a matter of weeks or perhaps it was a matter of days. We want to equip you in these weeks with not only how to hold steady like this in days like this, but also how to be ready for days like this. Now, remember, if you can think back, um, God has shocked Habakkuk by revealing his judgment on the nation of Judah. And now he's telling him that Babylon too will have its day of judgment. And this is what we're going to read here. And you're going to see it's a, a damning indictment of the nation. So if you've got your Bibles ready, and if you haven't, don't worry. As I said, the words will come up on screen. And we're going to read from chapter 2 of Habakkuk and from verses 4 to 20. See, he is puffed up. That's talking about Babylon. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captives all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion? How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become the victim. Because you have plundered many nations the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who judges his realm by un, who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin, 
you have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town with crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is not only fuel for the fire, or sorry, is, is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who drinks to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, Come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Tim Keller, who is a church leader in New York and uh, the author of a number of books, and he has spoken actually at our Houses of Parliament uh, just a couple of years ago. And he provides a helpful shape to these verses by looking at two important principles. We need to understand, first of all, we need to understand what is at the heart of this evil culture. And secondly, we need hope with which to face such evil. This Babylonian empire is formidable. I mean, it's not known as the hammer for nothing. And the nation, the nation that would sweep aside uh, an Assyrian empire, which was before it, is some formidable foe. It plunders nations, violates people. It's full of murderous intent. And notice... Uh, Everything it does is to serve its own ends. So if you look at verse 7 of chapter 1, it says that they are a law unto themselves. And that, by the way, is not a mere uh, few individuals, such as we might read in the papers, for breaking down, uh, for, uh, you know, for breaking the rules of, of lockdown. No, it's part and parcel of who they are as a people, a law unto themselves. They, they do what they like. They do it when they like. They do it how they like. So what does God tell us here? What is, the, what is God saying to us? That, what is the driving force behind this nation? So if you look at verse 4 again, it says, See, he is puffed up. It's an incredibly apt description of arrogance and pride. And pride does that. You know, it, it inflates us. Actually, it bloats us. Because it's all about itself. And then in verse 5, he says, He is arrogant and never at rest. He is as greedy as the grave, and like death, is never satisfied. Death never takes a holiday. Death never has a day off. And pride is like that. 
There's always space for more with pride. It is never satisfied. And the Bible tells us that pride comes before a fall. So at the heart of this empire, the driving force behind it is just sheer pride and arrogance. Now, church, I know I've used this illustration before, but there's others here who won't have heard of it. That Gerald Ratner of the once hugely successful jewelers, Ratner's was so full of himself that in an important speech to highly influential business people at the Albert Hall in 1991, he had a throwaway line and he described his merchandise as crap. It was for a cheap laugh, except it wasn't cheap. It cost him everything he had. And he, he then went on to say that Ratner's earrings were cheaper than a Marks and Spencer's prawn sandwich and probably wouldn't last as long. Another cheap laugh, but it cost him his, it cost him his whole business. It was sheer ego, just ego. But it goes deeper than a throwaway line in a speech. My friends, we all have a leaning towards bolstering our egos. Uh, on the matter of pride, C.S. Lewis said, there is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The other week, I made a comment to Des about a, a media item that was posted. And she, uh, she, there was a pause. And then she said, you know, Neil, and I felt something was coming. And she said, you said that in a very disdainful manner. And normally I might try and find a real wriggle room, but there wasn't any. I mean, I, I knew. I knew she was right. I was, she just stopped me in my tracks. I mean, she hit the bullseye. You know, in other words, what I was saying was I would never post anything like that. And then I was saying, and then I was, I realized I was putting down the person who posted it in order to lever myself up. You know, pride blinds us. When you're in the spotlight, the one thing you cannot do is see clearly. Christians, just to remind you, you need others to help you see clearly. You need to be connected with God's people. Please don't forget that. You need to stay in touch. We grow in Christ in the company of others. As I said previously, your personal growth as a follower of Jesus is a community project, not an individual one. Whatever you do at this time, let me say, hey, come on, let's stay connected. Now, I suspect uh, pretty much most of those things that we read in that chapter, second chapter, wouldn't be part of your history. How at the, at the heart of it, there are just two crucial elements. One which we read earlier, and that, that is that they are arrogant and empty. And secondly, they have an insatiable appetite for glory. Verse 16 says, you'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Chris Evert was a leading tennis player in the 1970s and 80s. And her career win to loss was the best of any singles players up to that point in time in history. And she was interviewed by a magazine as she contemplated retirement. And this is what she said. She said, I had no idea who I was or who I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life 
had been defined by me as being a champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. She had a relentless need to feel significant. My friends, that need is endless. And as much as we throw in to that emptiness, we will never fill it. There is a hole in our lives. And the hole is, it's only God-sized. Only he can fill it. We long for significance and worth. Lewis Smeads was a Christian author and he, he wrote this. He said, pride in a spiritual sense is refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for oneself. It's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his world and wishing instead to be creator, independent, relying on our own resources. You know, refusing to let God be God, being masters of our own lives, it just leaves us restless and unsatisfied. In order to measure ourselves, we then make comparisons with ourselves to other people. Of course, we want them lower down because we want ourselves higher up. And we want to establish our own worth and our own value. And then we find that we fall short of our own standards. My friends, we were never meant to live this way. We have been created to find all our life in God. Otherwise, it's exhausting. Christians, it, even the good things we, we, we can distort into making them things that give us ultimate value. So, such as success that, that was like for Chris Evert. Or ultimate value in our business. Now, at a time like this, I'm going to say it'll find many businesses out. Or is it, or relationships? You know, if you're putting all your deepest hopes for value and worth on the person you're marrying or have married, you're going to crush him or her with uh, expectations that they can't realize. No person, not even the best person, can take the weight of the significance of your life and give you all that your soul requires. They cannot do it. Only God can do that. Now, let's take the good things of a family, for instance. It's a good thing, family. And yet, we can make it an ultimate thing. You know, in some cultures, family is everything. And I mean everything. Particularly in traditional and conservative cultures. However, if you take that to the end degree and make it the ultimate, it can become imprisoning and suffocating. It can lead to women being regarded as possessions, and even in some cases lead to honor killings. It's where we take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing, to make us significant, to give us worth. Now, in our Western culture, we take pride in, in highly individual, being highly individualistic, so where the ultimate is individual freedom or individual rights. Now, the downside to that is that the ultimate expression of that is, you know, because I, I want to express myself and I, I want to have what I feel is right, it can lead to marriage breakups and, and family deterioration, abortion, my rights, my freedom. In other words, it's all about me. So 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn was imprisoned as a political prisoner in Russia for eight years uh, for for writings that he uh, for well things that he wrote in the late 1940s. And later he said he wrote this: the battle line between good and evil runs through every human heart. My friends, no one is exempt. So secondly, we secondly we need a hope with which to face such evil. We do. And in the middle of this terrible indictment of this uh, uh, that you read here in chapter two, there's this glorious shaft, shaft of life, and it comes light, and it comes in verse fourteen. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. You know, the Lord assures Habakkuk that He will glorify His name throughout the earth. There's no maybe. There's no perhaps. No, there's no hesitation. He will glorify his name throughout the earth. God will do it. This is our unshakable hope. Make no mistake about it. In verse 20, it says the Lord is in his temple. You know, he is sovereign Lord. He is in control. God's plans and purposes will be accomplished. He will bring salvation to anyone who will humble themselves enough to stop and put their faith in him. This is why Jesus came. You know, on the cross, he took all judgment, the judgment of all our sin. Now, the Bible tells us that. It tells he died for our sins. Only God could do that. And Jesus said, on the cross, it is finished. He meant exactly that. It's a done work. The cross, more than anything else, will tell you of your significance and worth. You don't have to add to it. If you do that, actually, you'll reduce the gospel. Don't do that, because it won't be a gospel at all. God so loved the world, it says, in John 3.16, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever is whoever. Now, in his book, uh, A War of Loves by David Bennett, um, he says it, as, as the author says right at the beginning, it's an unexpected story of a gay activist discovering Jesus and his hostility to Christianity and Christians. Um, it's not hidden. You, you can feel the heat off the pages. And he describes his experience of encountering God. And this lady was praying for him. And he said it was like a wind filling him with life. And then he hears this voice. Will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he felt an immediate reaction. And there was a tug of war going on in him. And then there was a quieter voice. And it said, I'm calling you, David. This is real and true. You've never experienced anything like this in all your searching. And then he writes, the most reluctant of words came from my mouth. Yes, I accept your son, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. David's journey in following Jesus Christ doesn't end there. Actually, it's only the beginning. And you'll find it's a very honest and illuminating story. It's a personal story of the Lordship of Jesus Christ over a number of years. 
He writes this, he said, in saving us, God does not erase us or our history. Rather, as our identities are bought under the lordship of Jesus Christ, he makes us into who we were meant to be. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now, that word knowledge in the Hebrew, there's much more to it than you would probably imagine. It's, it's not about a head understanding. It's far more than that. It's experience here. He's talking about a personal, intimate, exclusive relationship. That's what it means. Be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And throughout the Bible, we see again and again, God being faithful to those who screwed up their lives to those who messed up big time, finding faith and, and trusting God whose love for his people is absolutely unconditional. He promises us that he is for us. Go on, take him at his word. He promises to change us from one degree of glory to another. Take him at his word. He promises to empower his people with the Holy Spirit. Take him at his word. I mean, look at the change in Jesus' disciples. Look at the incredible movement of the church of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. Come on. Take him at his word. We want to be part of this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And, and at this point, I want to take the opportunity just to pray for you. So I wonder if we could just sit there and uh, hold our hands out to the Lord and, and let's pray. And Father, I pray for people here that they would dis rediscover. There'll be people here who, who feel apart from you. I pray they'll rediscover that personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that that love of God would come and meet with them now. I, I pray that they would know that they would know that they are loved unconditionally. I pray they would take you at your word and meet with you and know that their significance and value and worth is all found in you. And let me now pray for anyone who's responding to Jesus for the first time. If that's you, tell him now. Tell him, that's me. If it helps, just raise your hand and say, Lord, that's me, that's me. Now I want to pray for you. And Father, I pray for people who are responding now to meet you for the first time. I pray that your gospel, your good news, for them will all be, all be about you. Not what they can do, but all about what you have done. I pray, Lord, that they, you would know that, they, that you have died for their sins. Just put it out there. You, Lord, you died for their sins. Yes, even that one. I pray, Father, they would know the forgiveness of God in their lives. And know what it is to be clean inside. 
And Father, I pray for those standing here or sitting here who responded to you, that you would pour out your love deep in their hearts and make them new people in Christ. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.